take your Bible and turn to the book of Romans chapter 12. This is week 10 of our summer series we've entitled Summer of Hope. Hope has been our theme this year as we are coming out of what has been something of a hopeless season in the world. And we're trying to reflect on this biblical ideal of hope to know that regardless of what happens around us, there is hope. There is hope. Over the last several weeks, we've been considering passages from the Bible in this, what I'm calling a topositional series, where we look at different topics from the scriptures surrounding hope. We've been looking at different passages that really serve for us as foundational for hope. So we've considered, for instance, in the very first message that I preached 10 weeks ago, the foundation of hope, we looked at the scripture. We looked at the fact that the word of God, which is the inerrant, infallible word of God, is the only foundation we can have for hope in the world. You see, if anybody comes to you with some type of worldview, some type of philosophy for life, and you ask them, well, what's your authority for this philosophy? What's the basis for this worldview? And if they respond, well, that's just kind of what I think. Well, that's not very persuasive, is it? But if we say our worldview, our philosophy for living is the word of the creator of the universe, well, that carries a little more weight, doesn't it? So we looked at week one that we can hope based upon the fact that we have the scriptures, we have the word of God that serve as the authority for our hope. We looked at the fact that there is a basis for our hope in the gospel. What we just sang about, what I just read about in that prayer, that Puritan prayer, the gospel is the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and soon return of Jesus Christ to rescue all those who are saved by his blood. This is the hope of the gospel. And it's the basis for why we can hope. We considered uh, also why we hope or how we can hope is the, what I call the provision for hope. Namely, regeneration, the new birth, being born again, the fact that God in his power through his spirit has applied the gospel personally and quickened us from death to life. Friends, that gives us reason to hope. And then we also looked at last week what I called the persuasion of hope. Why do we do all that we do? Because God is all about his glory. And so the glory of God persuades us to hope because we know we were created to reflect the glory of God like a mirror. And for those wondering, my wound is healing nicely. I cracked a mirror and sliced my hand last Sunday morning in the service. We have a broken reflection today, marred by our own sinfulness. But there's coming a day when we receive a new body when we will perfectly reflect the glory of God. You can say, well, that, what's the big deal? So what about that? Listen, you will find greatest fulfillment. You will find complete satisfaction when you're reflecting the glory of God. Here's why. That's what you were created to do. You were created as a mirror, as an imager of God's glory. And when you are perfectly reflecting his glory, that's when you are fulfilled, not just as a Christian, but as a human being. Well, this morning, we're going to kind of take a turn in our focus on hope. Again, in the last several weeks, we've been looking at these things that serve as the foundation or the basis of our hope. This week and the weeks to come, we're going to start looking at things that result from hope. What should our lives look like? How should we interact with the world? How should we engage with other people? What should our lives look like if we are truly hopeful people? And so some of my sermon titles in the weeks to come are, for instance, next Sunday, 
the love of hope. Friends, if we hope in God, we of all people should be the most loving people. We should love others as Jesus loved if we hope in God. The week after that, my sermon title is The Boldness of Hope. Friends, if we have a hope that is secure, then we should be bold with our proclamation of the gospel. Why? What can man do to me? I've got a home in heaven. So we can be bold in our proclamation of the gospel. And mark this down, August 15th. I think it might be in the bulletin. We're going to have an Educator Appreciation Sunday on Sunday morning, August 15th. We're inviting the teachers and faculty from all of our community schools to join us here. Our children will be singing a couple songs to start off our worship service. We're going to have a banquet for them, a luncheon after our service. But that Sunday morning, I'm going to be preaching a message entitled, Educating Children to Hope. I don't know if you've recognized this as a Christian, but our priorities for what we want to see our children educated with is sometimes drastically different from the world. Has anybody noticed that besides me? Sometimes very different. I believe as Christian parents, regardless of where your children are attending school, public school, private school, homeschool, Christian school, prep school, it doesn't matter. Parents are the primary educators of their children. We don't abdicate that responsibility to the government or to any entity. And so every Christian child's education should be a Christian education, regardless of the academy they go to. So that's a preview of that sermon. This morning, we're going to look at this message, the joy of hope. The joy of hope. We're looking at Romans chapter 12, which is really going to be a launch pad to this biblical subject of the Christian's joy that derives from his hope in God. Now, for context's sake, I'm going to read the whole paragraph of of Romans chapter 12, verse 9 through 13, but there's really only three words I'm going to focus on in the sermon today, and they're really going to, again, serve as a launch pad for a, a biblical view of this concept of joy. So here's what the Bible says. Verse 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Did you catch it? It's verse 12. Now, I told you last week that there are verb and noun forms of most Greek words and and there's going to be a Greek uh, noun and verb form that's translated either hope as a noun or rejoice as a verb. And so in verse 12, rejoice or have joy in hope. And that's what we're going to focus on today. How does Christian hope produce joy in the believer? Now, we know by experience, we know simply by living life, that there are some people who seem to be more naturally joyful in others. I think this type of a chipper personality was demonstrated best in the Winnie the Pooh character Tigger, right? We all remember Tigger. He was always bouncing around, always a smile on his face, always happy. These kind of people, they they just hop out of bed with a natural smile on their face, right? They sing while they're in the shower. They whistle over breakfast. Some of you want to punch those people right now. Don't do it, okay? This is the Tigger personality, By contrast, there is in Winnie the Pooh someone else, Eeyore, right? In this particular clip, 
Winnie the Pooh comes up to Eeyore and says, lovely day, isn't it? And Eeyore says, wish I could say yes, but I can't. (laughs) We know these kind of people too, that you don't talk to them until they've had at least three cups of coffee, right? I mean, and even after that, the glass is always half empty. It's never half full. But listen, every Christian, Eeyores and Tiggers alike, every Christian has access to supernatural joy described in the Bible. Everyone who has been born again, everyone who has the Spirit of God coursing within them has access to this joy. And friends, this joy is the kind of joy that lasts through hardships. This biblical joy is the kind of joy that endures the darkest of days. It's the kind of joy that is steadfast during trials. And it is not based on someone's personality or chipper traits. It's rooted in the hope we have in God and in his gospel. It's rooted and grounded in something much deeper and much grander than our personalities. Well, there are three things particularly I want to point you towards that really show us and inform us about this biblical joy talked about here in Romans 12. First of all, I want us to think about joy defined. Joy defined. You know, attempting to use words like joy that really are words that describe emotional feelings, affections, things that are going on on the inside. It's hard to define them. It's hard to put words around them, but we're going to try. And so look at this next slide. I want you to see a few things about these biblical words in the New Testament for joy. The word rejoice, it's a verb. Cairo in Greek, you don't need to know that, but it's used 74 times in the whole of the New Testament. We're going to look at a lot of them this morning. The noun form joy or kara in Greek, if you've got a friend named kara, her name means joy. She may not know that, but that's what her name means. It's used 59 times. Here's how Strong's Dictionary of New Testament Words defines this word, Cairo, to be cheerful, calmly happy or well-off, or to rejoice exceedingly. So that's kind of the technical definition of the word. But I think we can get the real meaning of Christian joy if we consider some of these 133 ways, that's 74 plus 59, some of these 133 ways that the words used throughout the New Testament. And there's really three characteristics from the biblical description of joy I want us to come around this morning as we think about joy defined. First of all, biblical joy, it is spontaneous. It is spontaneous. By that I mean we don't just get up in the morning and say, I'm going to have biblical joy today. Christian joy is not a product of human determination. Christian joy is not an act of your will. Christian joy is a spontaneous reaction. It's something that happens to you. Let me just point you to one verse. Again, we're going to go through about 20 to 25 verses of the 133 that we, looked, we mentioned. But I just want to show you one verse uh, where this Greek word appears. And you'll see the aspect of spontaneity in this one and, and all of them we're going to look out throughout the, the message today. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 says this. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. As you consider Jesus, you don't now see him. Anybody seen Jesus today? <laughs> but you believe in him and you rejoice with 
kara, with joy. And Peter says this joy that spontaneously erupts in your heart, it is inexpressible, and it's filled to the brim with glory. You, you know, me, we make hundreds of decisions every day. You made many before you even came here today. You decided when you got up out of bed, if you were going to get up out of bed, what you're going to have for breakfast, the clothes you're going to put on, where you're going to park your vehicle when you get here, what seat you're going to sit in, if you're going to participate in your small group, if you went to small group earlier. Dozens of decisions you've already made today. Now, you made all these decisions, but you can't choose to have biblical joy. It's spontaneous. Now, you can choose to do things which will foster joy, and we'll look at that in just a moment. But I want us to think about the fact and, and settle on this fact that, that joy, biblical joy, supernatural joy, it is spontaneous. Secondly, Christian joy is substantial. Supernatural Christian joy is substantial. When Amy and I work on DIY projects together, she often accuses me of overbuilding things. And here's how she puts it. Troy, you don't have to build it to last 500 years. And I say, uh-huh. <laughs> I, I know I'm going to be dead and gone. And all the little things I've built or worked on, some poor soul is going to have to take those things apart one day. And they're going to say, he put 300 nails in this bench. And I'm going to go, ar, ar, ar. yes, I did. <laughs> right? Why? I don't want it to be flimsy. I want it to be substantial. I want it to last. I want it to be solid. Friends, Christian joy is not flimsy joy. Christian joy is substantial. It is strong. You've probably heard Bible teachers delineate between human happiness and Christian joy by saying happiness depends on what happens to you. Joy remains regardless of what happens to you. Anybody heard that description before? I think it's altogether appropriate. Joy is substantial, therefore it goes through and it remains regardless of what happens to you. There's so many examples of this in the Scripture. I'll just point you to a couple. In Acts chapter 5, we have the record of whenever Paul, excuse me, Peter and John were preaching the gospel in the temple portico, in the temple courts. And they were arrested, not once in chapter 5, but twice in chapter 5, they were arrested for preaching Jesus as Messiah in the Jewish temple. They were brought before the highest court in the land, the Sanhedrin, the very same court that convicted Jesus to die. They were before them, and they were told and they were warned strictly, don't you dare preach about Jesus again. Remember what they said? You choose for yourself what you're going to do, but is it better for us to obey God or obey man? In other words, we're going to keep on preaching Jesus. So what did they do? Notice what the Bible says um, in Acts chapter 5. Well, well, this doesn't say it in, in Acts 5. The verse just before it, they were flogged. They were beaten. It's the first of innumerable times when Christians suffered physical persecution for their testimony of Jesus. And how did they respond to the persecution, the beating, the flogging? Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name of Jesus. Rejoicing. That's joy. It's substantial in that it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. They are flogged. They are beaten. But yet here is Peter and John, and they still have joy. 
joy that's rooted in the hope of Christ. We see the same thing in 1 Thessalonians. At the beginning of this year, we spent nearly five months exegeting through the five chapters of 1 Thessalonians. The next to the last message in that series, we, we considered the joy that comes in, uh, in Christ to that church. As we considered that church in Thessalonica, and we're going to go into 2 Thessalonians in the fall, we, we looked at how that church was formed, how it started. And we have the historical account of that in Acts chapter 17. Paul and his missionary team arrive in the city of Thessalonica for three successive Sabbaths. They're teaching in the synagogue there in Thessalonica, proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. What happens? Jealousy, a mob, a riot, and they go to try to find Paul. They can't find him, so they go to Jason's house, one of the brothers in Thessalonica. They drag him and some of the brothers out, and they take them before the city officials to have them convicted of stirring up all this trouble in the land. In chapter 1, verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul gives a summary of all that I just told you about. Notice what he says. For you, you Thessalonian Christians, you received the word, how? In much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? Persecution, mobs, riots, dragged before the authorities. You received this word in much affliction with the joy of the of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Christian joy is substantial. It bears up under even the most hostile of situations. And I think perhaps Paul himself is the greatest example of joy remaining even through severe affliction. He tells this, puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You see, his joy was not dependent upon the situation. It was substantial. We could go on and on and on from the Scripture. Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Paul's not the only one. Peter says this in 1 Peter 4.13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. But in my humble estimation, perhaps the most profound description of the substantial nature of Christian joy comes from the words of Jesus himself. He told so, so many parables, but I have a favorite. And I think it's perhaps one of the most profound, certainly one of the shortest. In Matthew, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, he describes how the hope of the gospel motivates us to radical sacrifice for the kingdom. Jesus said in this short parable, one verse, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, his kara, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You know why this parable particularly is so profound to me? Because this is my personal testimony of faith. When the Holy Spirit quickened my mind to understand the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, it erupted in joy in my heart. And you know what my response was? You got everything, Lord. I'll sell all my possessions. I'll do whatever you want me to do. See, when you come to faith in Christ, it's not begrudging. True conversion 
is not reluctant. Well, I guess so, so I don't have to go to hell. True conversion is joyful. I will give up everything because I found the treasure. I'll sell all my possessions so that I can have this field where the treasure is discovered. This is true joy. This is true conversion. Joy is spontaneous. It's something that the Spirit does in us. It is substantial. And thirdly, this leads right into it, it is spiritual, i.e. it is supernatural. And friends, this is what differentiates Christian joy from human expressions of joy. Christian joy is not ultimately rooted in human emotion, in human will, in human personality traits. It is rooted in the Spirit of of God. So for us to say something is spiritual by nature, it means it's not human. It's a product, it is a result of the Holy Spirit, and therefore it is not natural. It is supernatural. This is probably most succinctly seen in the familiar passage in Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Joy, by definition, is spiritual. Christian joy, by definition, is supernatural. He says something similar in Romans 14. For the kingdom of God is not a manner of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in what? In who? In the Holy Spirit. We already looked at 1 Thessalonians 1.6. says the same thing. For you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And then as we continue on in John 15... John 15 is where Jesus gives the first and the initial promise to his disciples. If I leave, I'm going to send someone to you, the helper, the Holy Spirit. What's the consequence? What's the result of the Holy Spirit, the helper? Here's the promise from Jesus in John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. See, this is a supernatural process. This is a spiritual joy. And Jesus says, this same joy that you see in me, you're going to have it in you. As the Holy Spirit comes upon you and comes in you. Joy. Did Jesus have joy? Of course he did. And here's the thing about Jesus' joy. It was substantial. It was strong. It would bear up under the most severe difficulties. How do we know that? Because of what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, verse 2. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for what? For the joy that was set before him. So substantial, he endured the cross. And this same joy that enabled Jesus to endure crucifixion, which was not just a physical issue. It was spiritual. All the sins of humanity laid upon the perfect Son of God. That joy motivated Jesus. And he says, you can have that same joy in you. So, joy, that's joy defined. Leads to the second thing I want us to see about biblical joy. Number two, joy demanded. Joy demanded. On our focal text in Romans chapter 12, the verb there, rejoice, translated in English, rejoice in our English Bibles. The part of speech in Greek is actually a participle. So for your English teachers or English majors, you know what a participle is. In English, it normally ends in what? I-N-G. Yes, thank you, Charlesy. 
ing. That's a participle, right? So in the Greek, it's a participle, not, not a verb form, a, a plain verb form. A participle, so it would be translated. In fact, it's translated this way in the NASB and the King James Version, the New King James Version, translated as rejoicing in hope. In fact, the next verb is also a participle. So what does this mean? Thanks for the English lesson, Troy. What does this mean? Well, we could think, well, then it's not a command here. But, but I think it's clear from this context and also from other passages that Paul is, in fact, commanding us to rejoice. He's commanding us to rejoice. In fact, in the next command, there in chapter 12, verse 12, be patient in tribulation. The, the literal would be patienting in tribulation. That's a participle, but it's a command. He's saying you be patient. You exercise patience. So this is, I believe, an imperative, a demand, as I'm calling it, because this is all through the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. We looked at the beginning of our service at one of the Old Testament commands to rejoice in Psalm 118, verse 24. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us, what? Rejoice and be glad in him. In the New Testament, all through the New Testament, there is the command to, to rejoice. Probably the most familiar to us is Philippians 4, 4. What does Philippians 4, 4 say? It says, rejoice in the Lord always. And if you missed it, again, I'm going to say, here's the command, here's the imperative, rejoice. Rejoice. So clearly, Paul, from his apostolic authority, is commanding the, the Philippian Christians, and by extension, he's commanding the Chattanooga Christians to rejoice. Now, that begs a question. Perhaps this question is already rumbling around in your mind. If it's true that I said earlier, joy is spontaneous reaction, how can they command it? If True joy is something that happens to us, not something we can muster up. Well, then how in the world can the Bible over and over again command us to rejoice, command us to have joy? That's a great question, class. I'm going to try to explain it. I think it's probably best explained by looking at another command to rejoice in the New Testament and other commands that are connected to it. We considered this passage at the beginning of May in 1 Thessalonians. Notice what the Bible says there. Rejoice always. There's the imperative. There's the command. Here's some following commands. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, here's the connection. Do not quench the Spirit. See that? So we have these successive commands. Rejoice. Pray. Be grateful. How in the world do we do that? Do not quench the Spirit. Uh, what does quench mean? I explained it back in May when we looked at this passage in our ex expository series. Quench means to douse a fire with water. Now, who is the Holy Spirit? He's the third person of the Trinity. He is God. And as God, does he possess all the attributes of God? Yes. So all the different attributes we know the Bible describes of God, they are ascribed to the Holy Spirit, such as his omnipotence. He is all-powerful. Do you think, human being, you have the capacity or the ability to quench the global activity of the Holy Spirit? No. Here's the way I described it back then. However, in our own lives, we can do things to make our wood wet. Right? Right? 
We can do things to make our wood wet or not do things, disciplines that we should involve ourselves in, thereby making us not acceptable or able to receive the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Let me just mention a few. Unconfessed sin makes your wood wet. Distractions. How many distractions do we have in 2021? That prevents us from being able to receive the work of the Spirit. Misprioritizing things in our lives. Broken relationships. Harboring bitterness and unforgiveness over wrongs suffered. But do you know what else will quench the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and thereby short-circuit the joy that he would produce in us if we forget that the source of joy is hope. Rejoice, Romans 12, 12, in hope. All the things we've talked about for the last nine weeks, all the foundation of hope, all the basis of hope, all the persuasion of hope, when we meditate on the truth that there is hope, you know what it does? It dries up our wood so the Holy Spirit can work in power and stir up joy in the believer. In fact, I want you to notice the way that Jesus talked about it to his disciples in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 19, Jesus says, Behold, speaking to them and also to us, I have given you authority to tread on serpents. This doesn't mean snake handling mountain preachers, right? No, this is spiritually speaking. Giving you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. This is pretty profound, that Jesus promises for the believer in Christ, he will have victory in spiritual warfare in this life. That's pretty encouraging, isn't it? How would we look at this, this this success and victory in spiritual warfare in our lives? I would equate verse 19 here to this next thing, ministerial proficiency ministerial proficiency. We could be incredibly proficient at the church stuff, right? We've done it long enough. We've been around it long enough. We can do it in our sleep. We can become very effective. We can become skilled, ministerially proficient. We can have all of our theological I's dotted, all of our doctrinal T's crossed, but still not have the spiritual attribute of joy. I've been in full-time ministry long enough, almost 30 years, to have seen this again and again in others and in myself. There can be folks who are incredibly gifted, who are skilled, adept, ministerially proficient. They can exegete a passage of Scripture like nobody's business, but there's no joy. Why not? Where's their focus? Their focus is on this, ministerial proficiency. Jesus redirects our focus in the next verse. Look what he says in verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice, have joy, that your names are written in heaven. What word could we use to describe the truth that our names are written in heaven? Anybody know? Hope! (laughs) The fact that our names are in heaven, that's hope. 
That's the foundation of hope. That's the base of hope. That's the promise of hope. Our names are written in heaven. So it doesn't matter how skilled you are at Christian stuff. How do you have joy? Friends, joy is a consequence. Joy is a result of hope. So you may be here this morning. And as we take the mirror of God's word and we put it up to our face and we see the reflection of the word and the attributes or lack thereof in our own lives, you may look and you may say, yeah, I got a lot of knowledge about the Lord. I've got another, a lot of understanding about truth. But as I look at the mirror of God's word, there's not a lot of joy. There's a very simple yet profound remedy. Hope in God. Hope in his promises. Hope in eternity. This is joy. Joy comes from hope. Rejoice in hope. So we've seen joy defined, joy demanded, at least to the third and final thing, joy displayed. How is the supernatural fruit of joy from the Spirit of God How do we see it displayed in our lives? We're going to look at several other biblical passages to try to figure it out. First of all, true biblical joy is is outwardly expressed. It's outwardly expressed. Now, sure, joy is an internal emotion, if you will. It's an affection. It's a feeling. It's a result of the hope we have in God. But over and over and over again, what we see in the Bible is that biblical joy always has an outward expression. In Luke chapter 6, we see that particularly. Here in Luke chapter 6, the gospel writer kind of gives a summary of what we know from, from Matthew 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, called the Beatitudes. And there Jesus gives kingdom principles, kingdom ethics, if you will. It, it starts with blessed, each one of them, blessed. It starts with blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The final beatitude, the final blessing from Jesus is this. Blessed are those who persecute you for righteousness' sake. Well, that doesn't sound like much of a blessing, Jesus. I'm blessed. I'm happy if I'm persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Yes, and here's why you're blessed. Verse 23 of Luke chapter 6. Rejoice in that day. In what day? The day you're persecuted. The day you're fired because of your stand for Christ. The day you lose a relationship because of your hope in Jesus. Rejoice in that day. And what? Leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. Now, what word could we use to describe your reward is great in heaven? Hope. (laughs) Why can you rejoice? Why can you have joy at the most severest persecution? Because we have hope. Because there's a reward in heaven. Jesus says, this is the lips of Jesus, not a Pentecostal preacher. Leap. For joy. You got me dancing, and now I'm shouting. You got me leaping, and now I'm spinning. Hallelujah. Our VBS folks know that song. This is the outward expression of hope. We joyfully rejoice. So joy is outwardly expressed. It's also displayed in the fact that it is others-focused. It is others-focused, just like we saw with Jesus in Hebrews 12 too, who for the, this author and perfect of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, who or what is the joy that motivated Jesus to endure the cross? You. Me. 
redeeming lost sinners, brought Jesus joy, so much joy that he endured the hostility of the cross. Joy is others' focus. Paul wanted the Corinthian Christians to know this fact. The Corinthians had all kinds of problems. They had all kinds of issues. They had all kinds of hang-ups. And so Paul would put himself and others in front of them as examples. You know, follow this example. You, you might want to follow my example. Here he puts before them the, the example of the Macedonian Christians. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of kara, their abundance of joy, and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. See, friends, true joy that is grounded in our hope moves us to not look at our own needs first, but to look at the needs of others. For these Macedonian Christians, they were extremely impoverished, but their hope in Christ caused them to overflow with joy where they became amazingly generous with their money. It's others-focused. It's outwardly expressed. Finally, it obediently endures. And I think we've seen this attribute again and again and again in the passages we've considered today. Christian joy motivates the believer to an obedience to the call that endures even the most difficult trials and tribulations. Let me show you a few examples as we move towards the conclusion. Paul begins his letter to the church in Colossae with a prayer. He petitions the Lord on their behalf. And here's one of the things he prays for, that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. He prays for them to endure the hardships they're under with joy. Joy obediently endures. The author of Hebrews commends the Christians he's writing to in chapter 10, verse 34. They have such a perspective. He says, for you, believers, had compassion on those in prison, others focused, and you joyfully accepted, what? The plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What word could we use to describe having a better possession and an abiding one? Hope. So these Hebrew Christians had hope in a possession, in a home, in a future that was abiding, that did not fail. So they joyfully, this is otherworldly, friends, they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. I don't know about you, but I'm on this Nextdoor app for our community, and about half of the, the posts on this Nextdoor app are how people have come and stolen stuff from other people, right? Y'all have seen this before, some of you maybe? And so they have a little, net, the little uh, ring app, you know, in the video. They saw this guy. Anybody know who this person is? That's one thing to be robbed, and, and we don't want to be robbed, and we're not encouraging thievery. But here are these believers. They had their property plundered, taken away from them, not because these were thieves coming in the middle of the night, these were authorities who were persecuting them because of their faith in Jesus. And the author of Hebrews said, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. This kind of joy that obediently endures, it's a product of hope. Again, if you've looked at the mirror of the word of God this morning and you don't see this, this joy in your life, 
the simple prescription, hope in God. In fact, the Puritan Bible commentator and scholar Matthew Henry put it this way, and with this I'll close. He said, quote, the joy and peace of believers arises chiefly from their hopes. What is laid out upon them is but little compared with what is laid up for them. Therefore, the more hope they have, the more joy and peace they have. Christians should desire and labor after an abundance of hope. Again, if you don't see joy in your life, hope in God. Hope in the promises of God. And this joy is the first aspect of several we'll look over in the weeks to come as we continue in this series. And that leads to my last thought. We fight for joy, fight for it, as we set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth.